Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Sit back, relax, yes, we're back again, Mark, aren't we? It is the week week the meek the meek week ending may the 11th 2018 and it's pretty damn cold down here in melbourne mark this week i don't know about up your way in newcastle you get a bit of cold weather don't you up where you are we do get a bit of cold weather but this week has been the most splendid autumn weather the days have been 26 or 27 degrees with glorious sunshine it's just been awesome well, it's been miserable and cold and raining here today, Mark. So, and I think it's going to be the same tomorrow. But um, the good news is we're both heading up to Brisbane shortly. And um, just a heads up for all our listeners, we are going to the Australian Veterinary Association annual conference in Brisbane. And we will be roving reporters there, Mark, aren't, aren't we? Um, we will be. And we'll be going around with a little tape recorder, a voice recorder, Maybe I should take a tape record, an old tape deck, and that would really freak them out, wouldn't it? Um, but we'll go with a little digital record, and we'll, we will record some interviews with some of the trade display there. So probably the next podcast, maybe the one after, but probably the next one will be a special on the Australian Veterinary Association annual conference, so it'll be a little bit different than than usual. Um, we will still have some news articles, I expect, as well, but the main topic will be the interviews uh, with the trade and, and maybe a few other notable veterinarians. Mark, if we can corner a few of the vets up there and have a bit of a chat to them about what they're up to. I think so, you, I think put that little recorder in your pocket and you won't even need to tell them, Brendan. You can just look like... Um, have the interview and then play it back afterwards. We can do that, and I might even take, we could always put up one of those little almost hidden lapel mics there, Mark, and, and we can sort of sneak around and record things we shouldn't be recording. Yeah, so so that's hopefully some fun that will be happening next week. So, um, And for those of you who want to contact us, vetgurus at gmail.com is the best email to contact us. And we have got... A flurry of emails, Mark, came in when you announced the, that the competition for our book was finishing last week, and we did have a flurry, didn't we? And they were pouring in the emails, so we, I think we have selected our winner, and it is unanimous, but we are not going to announce our winner this week, are we, Mark? We will announce it probably next week or the week after, and um, we'll sign the book for that person, and it will be shipped out to them at great expense. Um, from Mark and Brendan. So, yeah, we will announce that winner. But we've got a couple of emails from one vet, um, from Nick from Columbus, Ohio in the USA. Hi, Nick. And he said some very nice things to us. He's enjoying our podcast and he even finds it entertaining, which is um, quite interesting, Mark, isn't he? Probably he maybe even laughs at one or two of our jokes or is that taken a little bit too far, is it? No, no, I think, maybe? I think there's... <laughs> Amazing comedic timing going on if if the emails are correct and I've got no doubt that Nick is having a little chortle every once in a while. Well, hello, Nick. And I think well, what we might do is I'll jump into the first little email that Nick sent us because we have two emails that um, he's becoming a serial pest, Nick. Um, 
um, that he sent to us, and it was regarding our previous podcast that we were talking about desexing of the small mammals, and we mentioned using desloralin implants in ferrets as a preemptive treatment prior to desexing or surgically desexing or in place of surgically desexing. And he was curious, Mark, if we could provide more information and possibly some links to journal articles about that. Well, the good news is I've, I've already sent Nick a couple of those journal papers or articles and and one was um, titled use of a GnRH agonist implant as an alternative for surgical neutering in pet ferrets so exactly what he was looking for that was from the veterinary record and the other article title was uses of use of a gonadotrophin releasing hormone agonist implant containing 4.7 milligrams desloralin for medical castration in male ferrets Um, and that one was from the internal of uh, the Internal Journal of Applied Research in Veterinary Medicine, I think it was. And we sent those to Nick and we will link to those or at least to the abstracts um, in our show notes, which will be up on vetgurus.com. But the bottom line is, um, does it work and, and is it something that we recommend? Well, the answer is yes, in my practice, certainly. And I did two ferrets earlier this week, in fact, Mark, that these were... Um, one, I'm trying to think whether they were male and I think one was a male and one was a female and they were just over six months of age and I gave them a brief um, gas down with um, isoflurane. I'd like to do that um, for the ones that I'm implanting because the, the implant is probably, the, the needle that the implant is in, the desloralin implant is wider or bigger than um, than than the needle that we have for the microchips. Um, so I prefer to have the, the ferrets just lightly anaesthetised when I place those implants in there to make sure that I do pop those implants in there and correctly and I do then put a, a, a dab of the tissue glue on the hole where the implant was placed, which is in between the shoulder blades, Mark. So, so yeah, I did two this week and, and I think we mentioned in that article uh, that podcast on desexing that um, we're increasingly using this as a method to um, chemically desex these ferrets um, early on when they're around about six months or six months plus and then potentially going back in in a year or two and and considering surgically desexing them with the thought that that maybe this might be a, a preferred method in order to help prevent the incidence of um, adrenal gland disease um, because we do know that desexing ferrets at an immature age does increase the chance of them getting the adrenal gland disease as they become older. So, so yeah, I did too. And these papers um, back that sort of um, logic up there and that first paper, the one which was um, the summary paper, and I'll just read a little bit of the abstract, Mark, before we move on to the next email. Um, and maybe you may want to comment as well. Um, during a two-year follow-up study, 61 female, uh, uh, 69 female and 61 male entire pet ferrets were given a 4.7 milligram desloralin implant as an alternative to surgical neutron. And then jumping down to the last sentence, it is advised to place a new implant on a yearly basis basis to guarantee continuous gonadal suppression, although biannual replacement may be sufficient in the majority of ferrets because the interesting thing is the minimal activity um, um, 
with the implants, um, reading further in the article, was two years um, for 77% of the ferrets, Mark. So the implant worked for two years in 77% of them. And um, the um, only thing people need to remember is that um, a, um, a fair percentage, although low um, percentage of the female ferrets, will come into estrus shortly after you give you place that implant in there. So you do need to warn the client that potentially their their female will get a swollen vulva there. It usually decreases again within within a couple of weeks or so with them, and even less. Um, 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 well, actually, it's not that less. I said sixteen percent of the um, females also develop to pseudo pregnancy as well, but that does resolve over a few weeks there so um their bottom line with that article summary article of it of a, of a study of 60 odd male and female ferrets um was that uh, you should consider um just implanting them every year um for um prevention of um estrus or, or preventing the males um mating and the other interesting thing is it got rid of the the ferrety smell with most of them because we know that's under hormonal control as well mark um and one final thing that I found of interest and I think it was in the other paper they were talking about that there was no change and this is one you may want to comment on mark with with the males that were implanted with um these implants um, in order to potentially stop them being aggressive. It didn't stop those males or decrease the aggressive behaviour in them, although it did chemically desex them, Mark. So do you have any comments on my big monologue there, Mark? <laughs> well, my only comment is that um, we've only just, um, I suppose there's three uh, um, pathways. The ferrets that um, have an implant and then get the repeated implants the ferrets we desex, but that subset of ferrets uh, where we place an implant and look to desex them later, in the um, in the thought that the the more uh, more adult desexing is likely to allow a decrease in the incidence of um, of adrenal disease as they get older, um, we haven't got we haven't been doing many of those. We certainly have been uh, placing uh, implants in. The, the ferrets that have adrenal disease and in young ferrets where people don't want to dissex them. But, um, but I'm really keen to see how we go with those ferrets that, um, that have an implant for a year or two and then get dissexed. And, and I'd, be, I'd be really keen to maybe um, get a decent series of them to see if that has an effect on the incidence of adrenal disease. Um, yes. The jury's still out on that one, Brendan. Absolutely, and I think I'm sure there's some maybe some of these research that wrote those papers are probably actively looking at those sort of studies there because it may or may not be the case that in the longer run we we don't desex them surgically and we just end up implanting these pet ferrets um, every one or two years or so. Um, and that's all we end up needing to do to, to stop them breeding and to prevent the estrus, uh, the estrogen suppression um, syndrome in the females and to stop the adrenal gland disease or, or at least um, decrease the chances of that occurring. So so there you go, Nick. There's a very long-winded answer, but I have sent you those articles and I think you've already received them and they are on our website, vetgurus.com, for anybody to see the links to those. And I think one of the journals is open source, um, um, the articles, so you can download that freely for, by clicking on the link at our website. Mark, do you want to take the next question that the um, 
our serial pest Nick centers. Good on you, Nick. Um, For uh, sure, Brendan. I'm, I, and it's a really it's a um, it's a, a an email that raises a couple of questions that I'd be keen to quickly explore. Um, uh, so I'll quickly run through the email, then I'll tell you what I think about it. Um, Nick writes that one of his colleagues has had a case recently um, that ended. Uh, unfortunately, with um, the patient, uh, a young African fat-tailed gecko being euthanized. Um, overall, the lizard had a history of inappetence and lethargy and other non-specific signs. Um, and uh, unfortunately, the lizard's owner did not have the budget to do much more um, and did not, unfortunately, permit a necropsy examination. Um, but uh, there was faecal cytology and flotation performed. And this is where Nick's question comes in. Um, there was something seen that uh, Nick's colleague felt was likely to be a parasite, but he was unable to identify it. Now, he lists uh, Dr. Mader's texts, uh, Dr. Mader's text, uh, the Infectious Disease and Pathology of Reptiles book and Flynn's Lab Animal Parasite book. And I was thinking that, um, that those... Uh, text would certainly in most instances provide uh, a suitable reference to uh, allow him to identify the parasite so if it's not in there um i would probably if if it was my case and uh we had um something we couldn't identify we'd use one of our um local pathology services and i know uh we often send things both to our uh um, private pathology service and to Taronga Zoo and they're helpful for us to find some of those odd things. Um, I think with, uh, um, this is another interesting thing, I suppose, the African fat-tailed geckos, we don't see any of them in Australia, but I do get to see quite a few um, of the knob-tailed geckos and um, uh, wonderful underwoodysaurus, the, the uh, barking gecko. Um, and they do, we do see a lot of um, pinworms in those guys, Brendan. Um, there is uh, a fairly, um, it's not uncommon to find um, uh, um, uh, oxyurid eggs in the stools of those lizards. Um, and there, certainly there is, a, um, you know, the, a li the likelihood that there will be odd parasites. And in some collections, there's been noted that there's parasites that are not typical of geckos. The geckos can pick up parasites from other species in nearby enclosures. So so I think it is one of the things with geckos when they do have chronic illness and they are prone to uh, carrying the parasites and then getting them out of control. So I wouldn't be surprised that Nick and his colleague are on the money there. Um, but um, but I, I, they're already doing all the things that I would do to uh, narrow down the, the species of parasite involved. Um, and maybe they uh, it would be good for them to contact one of their local um, uh, zoos or pathology services to see if they can characterise the species more particularly. Yes, and I, I, I think the the thing I would stress to Nick about that one is that the the owner didn't have the budget, which um, which is not uncommon, is it? But but when you're dealing with something a little bit different, like a species like this, it's amazing if you just reach out to some of these pathology. Um, companies or pathologists or, or local zoos and you may find a, a veterinarian at the local zoo like you mentioned or, or a pathologist who is keen to learn more about some of these species um, and they may do it at a reduced cost um, the post-mortem or the examination of the tissues that you send them so um, and it's a great learning experience isn't it I still 
cut up lots of animals that I've ended up killing, <laughs> which is a lot of animals, um, over the years. And I enjoy doing those necropsies because it's amazing how much you find with them, even if you're only doing a five or a 10 minute necropsy. So it's a great learning experience. And if there's, even if you don't see anything in that, 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 uh, on that necropsy, um, pop, um, different, um, tissues into formalin and you've got them there. If, if something comes up in the future and you've got that, um, case you can send off, um, for, for histo, for instance, um, with them. So, yeah. So we haven't got any real answers for you, um, Todd, um, for that, but it's frustrating when you're doing, um, dealing with those. And yeah, you've, you've looked at a couple of the very, um, good um, reference textbooks there. The other parasitology text that I like is the, um, which is a general one, but it has a reasonable, or does it have a reasonable amount of reptile stuff? Maybe it just has small mammal stuff in there as well. It's that Georgie's um, parasitology for veterinarians. Um, I find quite useful as a general textbook. So um, that's another one um, you can have a look at um, perhaps as well. But yeah, no answers for you, unfortunately. Um, unfortunately, Nick. Um, but um, yeah, keep sending those emails. Don't worry. We um, we enjoy um, receiving emails from all our listeners and um, don't worry about sending another emails to us if you have another question for us um, in the future, Nick. So let's jump into some articles, Mark, um, some news articles before we get on to the very itchy topic we have this week, Mark. Um, and I'm going to take the first one because I love this little article where uh, we have pulled it up here. Yeah. Why we should, and there's two reasons why I like this article, or maybe actually three, and you'll see as we go along why why we should live our lives more like sloths do, Mark. And um, as soon as I saw this article, so, uh, this article I thought of you. Of um, course, Mark, here we go. Um, um, and reading from the article, and it's another Mother Nature Network article, and where they spoke to a zoologist, Lucy Cook. And she has a, is it a book there? Um, yeah, she has a photo book called Life in the Sloth Lane, Slow Down and Smell the Hibiscus um, is the title of her book. And she's got some, they have some of the pictures from it and, and they're pretty amazing animals, aren't they? Um, but quoting her, um, sloths are very strange and hugely misunderstood. People think because they are slow, they are lazy. Well, that's what I think about you. Um, um, but they're incredibly successful. There you go. That's, it reminds me so much of you, Mark. The reason for their success is their slow formation, evolutionary advantages, being energy-saving icons, and are brilliant at making dew on very little calories. Well, maybe it isn't you. On very little calories per day. Um, so um, the bit I loved further on, and you'll like this, we need to look at slots as gurus for how we live our lives thanks to their slow sustainable lives we need to try and be more sloth like by being more mindful we will be more considerate of the planet and ourselves and cook said the book's theme is slowing down and appreciating life for what it is instead of chasing after what you want it to be and um I can certainly relate to that, Mark, lately with what um, with my little health scare recently and um, sort of reassessing things generally. But um, it also has some amazing photos in there. So it has a bit of everything for me, this um, article there, Mark, on why we should be living our lives a little bit more like slots. Well, I don't need any encouragement there, Brendan. Just the <laughs> just say the word. Um, my, my article, the next one we're dealing with is um it's a little bit well it's certainly not as upbeat as um 
as uh, the story of the sloths there. And they are, oh, the, the photos of them are just awesome. Um, the story I've got to talk about, once again, Mother Nature Network, it's the story of a tiger cub that was found in a duffel bag um, uh, at the US-Mexico border in Texas. Um, and this story speaks to um, some of the things that um, really worry me about um well, particularly, I suppose, the US, that uh, um, that uh, the sort of mentality of uh, maybe some of the wealthier people who live in Hollywood, that they have to have these animals as pets, uh, um, it, it's, and the way they acquire them. Um, I, I down further in the article, there's talk about um, just in the US, the... the, uh, the Trade in illegal wildlife is estimated to be um, something in the vicinity of two billion US dollars annually. Um, yeah, I just I think it um, it uh, particularly in light of the fact that many of these animals are um, endangered species in their natural environment. Um, to think so little of them as to stuff them in a duffel bag and then dump them uh, when it becomes uh, a little bit of a headache. Um, and as a consequence, the poor animal um, was in serious need of medical attention, unconscious when the bag was opened. Um, yeah, I don't know, I find it a little bit distressing. Um, it's pleasing at least that uh, was found before the poor thing passed away. Um, it would have been quite a, you know, with Donald Trump and um, the bags of drugs that are tossed regularly over the location that the wall would be placed, um, I'm sure the... the uh, Water guard who found this stuffle bag was expecting to open and find it full of white powdery stuff, and to find a sleeping tiger cub in there must have been quite a shock. Um, but, yes. it is, but it is really pleasing, at least that particular animal's um, uh, been transferred to the famous Gladys Porter Zoo and um, has been appropriately treated um, and is stabilised and doing well and expected to make a full recovery. So, um, so yeah, it is you know. 50,000 illegal shipments of wildlife um, are, are seized at ports coming in through Latin America to America. Um, and uh, uh, another last year, uh, Bengal tiger cubs sedated and, and attempted to be transported within hidden compartments. A lot of these animals are treated very cruelly to get them to their destination in the US. Yes, and the list of some of the other animals there um, is pretty amazing as well, isn't it, Mark? Um, monkeys, parrots, endangered turtles, cobras hidden in potato chip cans. Um, yeah, it's all all a bit sad. And I think what was it? The estimated two billion an annual US illegal wildlife black market, um, Mark. So yeah. Um, yeah, a sad story, Mark. Thanks for making me uh, even more <laughs> depressed than I already was. Um, yeah, so I'm going to jump on to our third article, which um, this one's not about ribbing you. It's more about ribbing me. It, it, uh, I, I thought of myself when I saw, um, read this article, and that is male brown widow spiders prefer mature ladies even if it means getting eaten. Um, and when it comes to being mating, young female brown widow spiders are clearly the best choice for males. They don't require long courtship periods. They're more fertile than their older counterparts and they're less likely to eat the male. And yet males of the species seem to have a predilection for older lady spiders, according to a study published in the Journal of Animal Behaviour. 
older spiders require a lot more work to woo and they're far more likely to eat the males after mating. The male spiders will even choose older spiders over fertile female spiders that are about to become adults despite the obvious benefits. And this is where it gets to the crux of this article, Mark, um, the next paragraph here. We thought that we would find some benefit that the males have in mating with older females, says the co-author. But so far, we really don't understand what their choice is. Um, yeah, so as as you know, Mark, I'm a bit of a toy boy um, myself. Um, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a, not that much younger, but I'm a bit younger than my wife. Um, and I have a very good reason why I chose my wife, because um, I think I bat far above my... Um, my my um what's the saying you bet phone above your um average your weight or whatever average <laughs> you punch above your weight so, um, yeah i punch above my weight yes that's right because I was, i'm very lucky to be with my wife annette so um yes so um but it did make me think of um my lovely wife when i read this article so going further on into the article what they did, they took nine adolescent, young, adult and older female spiders, Mark, and they placed them evenly throughout the greenhouse. Then they let loose 11 virgin male spiders in the greenhouse at an equal distance from each group of the females of, of different ages. The researchers checked on the spiders every 45 minutes to see where the male spiders were congregating. Almost all of them were fighting over the older females. Um, and then they also placed a single male spider one-on-one -on -one with the same types of females and the males mated with the older females 100% of the time. And yet 57% of the male spiders in the study that mated with an older female were devoured. And their final comment is, what's so alluring about these older females then, especially when the odds are high for death? Well, they don't know. Um, they're, they're, they're thinking that perhaps the the older females are excreting um, different pheromones to attract the younger males to try and increase the chance that they will um, mate and, and, and um spread their um, genetic code, but they do not know. And they are planning another little study, Mark, on these male brown widow spiders. So I thought it was a quite an interesting little study there and a fun one. Probably not for the males there, though. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that um, that there's not, um, like, you know, many of these um, uh, strange mating behaviours, there's an intuitive you know, reason that you would suspect that they might do that, but um, but there just doesn't appear to be any logic. You're going to get eaten. You probably won't have as many um, uh, babies. Your genes are not going to be spread as far. Um, uh, I don't know yeah, what quite, the explanation would be. It was quite a curious one, and I'm not. Um, yeah, maybe we'll have to wait for their follow-up study, Mark. Um, the final news story, I think, is yours, Mark, isn't it? And it's um, one about veterinary interns. It is. It is one that I sent to you to um, to suggest that we might have a talk about it. I, I have to say that I was a bit um, uh, ambivalent about talking about this article. This article is um, uh, I can't remember where I found it. It's a recent one that where veterinary interns in the United States speak out against um, exploitation, um, and uh, and I, and particularly because of the the the, the parts of it that spoke to some aspects of mental health, um, I thought it would be a good thing for us to um, just contemplate. I don't um, – I'll talk about some of the statistics that are in this article. I don't pretend that that's what happens everywhere, but I think it is a useful thing for us to talk about. So apparently um, nearly a third or more than a third in uh, 2014 of graduating interns um, – 
undertake internships, a year-long stint at a university or private practice that's meant to hone a young veterinarian's skill. They're not mandatory in our profession. Internships are not a mandatory thing. But, um, but yeah, more than a third of uh, veterinary graduates uh, in 2014 in the US uh, chose to pursue them. Um, and for many, the programs pave the way to specialty residences, uh, residencies in fields like cardiology, dermatology, and exotic animal medicine. Um, others believe that the experience will give them an edge over those who go straight into practice. Um, but at least in this article, the internships are have a reputation for brutally long hours and extremely low pay, maybe only um, 40% of the wage that um, their fully employed cohorts are getting. So that's a big price to play, pay for a, um, an additional year's training on the job, I would have thought. Um, and um, there is now some evidence that, um, that those sorts of um, internships adding uh, to the financial stress, financial stress, uh, paying for their education being one of the most important things that uh, vet newly graduated veterinarians quote as adding to their stress, the, the either their hex debt here in Australia or their tuition fees in America. Um, those fees play a lot on new graduates' mind that, that being able to repay those um, fees is um, something that's going to take a significant portion of their life um, and to undertake an internship at low pay at the beginning of that time um, probably does add to uh, um, to the um, the stress these people suffer so um, I, I it's just been playing on my mind Brendan what are your thoughts with respect to internships yeah I think that that <sighs> Yeah, it's it's tricky, isn't it? I mean, reading this article, I I would hope that we don't have similar sort of process going on in Australia as far as the the, the, the hours that um, interns potentially work and and, and the um, the pay rates, which are incredibly low compared with um, the standard rates. Um, and I think the difficulty is, and and I presume it may be the same in a lot of countries including here in Australia is that there's no no time caps or, or, or le legislation that, that that limits the amount of hours that you could have an intern working for you um, I yeah I, I just hope that we're just not exploiting people that we shouldn't be and apparently by the look of this article it is is not uncommon especially in the US um, system that this this happens um the difficulty is that and, and I could see myself doing this um, if if I was a younger vet when when I was starting to look for for zoo work um, if I saw a job that was difficult to get um, in the field I was looking for the zoo medicine work um, I, I wouldn't have thought twice about taking it regardless of what sort of um, pay rates or hours that were offered to me because you just wanted to be in that um, discipline um, or, or get some experience in that area and I think that's probably what's happening here in that the the the, the interns or the, or, or the young graduates are so desperate to get into the field that they that they want to eventually specialise in that um, they're, they're, they're then um, right for being exploited there. Um, what's the solution to it? I don't know. Maybe, maybe legislation? I don't know, Mark. I, I think the same thing probably happens to a greater extent with, with veterinary technicians or, or veterinary nurses, as we call them um, here in Australia. And, and I certainly worry more about 
the fact that um, some veterinary nurses um, that are training uh, are, are working for veterinarians um, and veterinary clinics at, at, at very low wages um, and or, or no no pay at all um, and they're kept for several months and then they're, they're turfed out um, for them to get somebody else. Um, yeah. Have you had some any similar experiences with the vet nurses? Um, um, we certainly are quite aware of the... the, um, the the value that the veterinary nurses, the support personnel in our practice. I'm, I'm, keep talking, Mark. I'm just going to put my dogs outside. They're going a bit nuts here. I'll be back in one minute. Keep talking. Well, I was um, just uh, uh, as far as veterinary nurses go, I do think there are times when those um, student veterinary nurses, uh, they get a lot of experience and it's part of their training here in Australia that they need to spend time in practices um, and, uh, and it is really important that there is a balance struck between what work they do and what uh, what they um, get out of it I suppose um, it's been the uh, the whole thing about interns has been playing on my mind because we have a job we're trying to get someone with exotic animal experience to come and work at the Sugarloaf Animal Hospital um, and yes. both as part of that um, you know uh, trying to make that position more attractive um, you know as if it wasn't attractive enough being in Newcastle and uh coming to work with the wonderful staff that I work with, we thought that um, setting up some sort of internship uh, arrangement, I know there's a number of private practices that do that in Australia already. Um, obviously, we wouldn't, uh, we would be paying them the full, you know, the full uh, salary that we would pay anyone. But um, if we added the internship, we thought that would make it a, a more attractive uh thing for people with an interest in exotic animals but reading this article i don't know whether that's the right thing to do brendan well i think if it's done correctly and i'm sure you would then it would be an attractive way to try and um and work well for both parties uh, so what is the best contact mark um for somebody to contact you if they're interested in, in working at Sugarloaf Animal Hospital in Newcastle in north of Sydney in Australia. Maybe just vetgurus.com. Uh, vetgurus at gmail.com yep. is probably the best one. If, they, it, if uh, they use our, uh, our vetgurus uh, webpage and the contact details there, that'd be perfect, Brendan. And yes, um, I think if they're done correctly, they, 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 they work well. And the whole aim of it is to to learn on the job and, and to get paid for it. Um, yes, maybe not the, the, the same amount as a, as, a, as a regular employee, but you are learning the skills you need um, for the discipline you are going to end up in. But, but yeah, that article was um, pretty horrific, wasn't it, um, some of the things that, and the figures that it did have in there. So, um, yeah, I, I personally don't know anyone who has gone through that process mark i don't know whether you have whether vet, veterinarian or vet nurses but um i'm sure in all industries um people are exploited to um but hopefully it is low numbers and and we should be doing our best to try and stop that occurring in the future yeah so so that was um gee we had some that, interesting you got to do all the combination of articles brought yeah. the time down yet again <laughs> yes, well, that was my decision, wasn't it? I always choose all the um, um, juicy, um, nice, fun ones. Mark, so sorry. I'll, I'll, I'll flick a few your way next time, Mark. Let, well, let's jump into our main topic because we're already half an hour into our 
podcast here, and we thought we'd choose a, a, a general topic, one for, for general practice and, and especially concentrate on sort of a topic that also the the veterinary interns or the veterinary, I'm sorry, not that, well, maybe the veterinary interns too, but the veterinary nurses or veterinary technicians um, would um, like some more information of because we do have a large percentage of veterinary nurses or veterinary technicians that do listen to us as far as the percentage of total listeners mark and we should tailor a few of our presentations or our podcasts to them so we're going to talk about fleas in dogs and cats or flea allergy dermatitis in dogs and cats and goes through about five or six or eight or ten um, quick fire um, information topics and, and work through the process of how you and I deal with them in practice and I know we've done this similarly with with other topics haven't we and and people have enjoyed um, the sort of banter we've had about the way we deal with them in um, practically um, with the with these um, conditions so I might um, kick off Mark with my first comment would be if you have a dog or a cat that comes in with a flea allergy dermatitis issue always always have to think about treating the client and I'm not talking about Mark treating the client that's itchy um you send them to their gp if they're itchy but it is the i've lost count of how many and and we probably only see five ten percent max probably five percent these days of of dog and cat owners and the rest are unusual pets um but i've lost count of how many dog owners come into my have come into my clinic they pop their dog up on the consultation table and say my dog Fido is itching and by the way he doesn't have fleas and you look at the dog and there's all these fleas jumping onto the consult room table so I think part of dealing with these flea allergy cases is it it is really important you need to um, really hone your people skills and 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 sometimes you need to go softly softly with them and and slowly convince the client that hey maybe your dog or cat does have fleas and and maybe we should be doing something about it um i tend to go to look at it fairly positively for the client's mark and i say to them hey i think it's a flea allergy dermatitis in your dog that's a good thing because it's something we can cure something we can get rid of um as opposed to an atp or a contact allergy or, or a food allergy that that may be a lifelong condition in your dog or cat it's something that we can fix and and we can get stuck into it with the treatments that we'll talk about shortly um and we can cure your animal and everybody's a hero the dog's happy because because it's not itching anymore. The client's happy because um, their dog is not itching anymore and keeping them up at night, and the, and the vet's a hero because we fixed the animal, Mark. So that's my first comment, treat the client. What would you say is the sort of, well, let's maybe let's talk about some of the signs that we see. What, what What's the classic signs you see with fleas, allergy, dermatitis cases coming in, Mark? Well, the classic sign we see um, is, um, as you've already highlighted in both your introduction and the, na- the name of this podcast, that the, the animals are itchy. Pruritus is the the uh, you know the hallmark initial sign, and um, and then that itchiness leads to self trauma and secondary infection, particularly in locations over the tail butt and down the back of the legs, 
um, and then on the ventral aspect of the body. Um, and we also see some, um, some other things that uh, can give us clues that a dog might be having a problem. Um, the way that they groom themselves can lead to damage to their teeth. Um, the abrasive nature of hair and the corn cob chewing way that they flee themselves can have, can indicate that some dogs are, are dealing with a flea allergy dermatitis. Um, so it is a, a really important thing to, uh, to you already emphasised, Brennan, that uh, the majority, I would say, the majority of dogs that we get to see that have active flea allergy dermatoses, they are... Um, they don't have any fleas on them. So your clients are probably right in the majority of instances. Um, but that's because those itchy dogs, those sensitive dogs, the allergic dogs, are so sensitive to the fleas that they groom them out. Um, uh, you know, they might only have very low numbers and uh, those dogs will have uh, completely removed them by the time that we get to look at them, which does make it frustrating. It's always good when you've got those ones that you scrape out a couple of fleas and they're jumping around. Um, uh, but uh, the ones where there are no fleas on them, uh, the owners often take that as vindication of their um, their pre veterinary diagnosis um, and it does take as you said some treatment of the client to explain to them that many of the dogs that do have flea allergy dermatitis don't have fleas on them for large parts of the time they only need them there for a very short period to set off the allergic reaction yes and and you may have a dog that has no reaction at all to fleas so it's it's has lots and lots of fleas on its body and in its environment and yet it's not itchy at all so you don't see that dog being brought into the clinic um, and it's the ones that have the flea allergy response like you just said mark that that it may only take one flea to jump on them and bite them and then they have that severe pruritic reaction there mark. and it's so, a, and you're, so yeah so i was just going to say brendan that that other dog is frequently you know because they do bring you the itchy one um and you can treat it but you do have to be aware of the other pets in the environment that lead to that the contamination of the environment and the perpetuation of the cycle um, and even those cats we've at home we have a problem with cats getting under our front porch and uh, just sitting there dropping a whole bunch of fleas and then our dog goes out the front and collects a bunch of them and uh, um, and if we weren't treating them aggressively those fleas would be causing a problem for poor ruby so um, paying attention to the I think Ruby's. I think Ruby's just a flea bag, Mark. <laughs> um, I'm going to go off topic a tiny bit, Mark, and it's not in the little discussion we we spoke about before we got on you air. You always and, do, and this. that's You're regarding yes, badly, badly <laughs> And this is no, it's it's related to the topic, but it's a different species, um, and that is rabbits and fleas mark and i saw a revisit on a rabbit today for a non-flea related condition but this rabbit was absolutely covered in fleas and interestingly enough we dispensed um and it, it basically it, it has a bumblefoot or a pododermatitis that we're treating with with um, bandaging every few days and the owner's doing that at home and she's doing an excellent job and it's responding slowly to treatment. It's a very old, it's an oldish rabbit, six, six and a half, something like that. So it's a slow process, but it's foot slowly getting back towards normal. And 
yeah, uh, a, a, f- a few visits ago, it was noticed that it had fleas and um, lots of fleas, in fact, um, and it wasn't particularly pruritic, this rabbit. And Revolution or, or Salamectin was dispensed um, for this particular rabbit. And um, it was seen again a week or so later or a couple of weeks later, and it was full of fleas um, still or again. And same story again this morning when I saw it, it had lots of fleas on it. And yet this is a very good client and she has been using the Revolution um, as recommended every two to three weeks. And it just reminded me, um, this particular topic is the reason why this is not working, Mark, and it's probably not something that a lot of people sort of know, is the the half-life of, of selamectin in rabbits is much shorter. So you need to – it does work very well, and the published reports and the papers that are out there show that selamectin does work for flea control in rabbits, but you need to use it a lot more frequently than once every three or four weeks, which is what we'd suggest for say, a ferret with a flea allergy or a rat or a mouse with ectoparasites. And that is you need to give it at least once a week, Mark. So um, I've popped her on to once a weekly dose of selamectin and the chances are pretty good that that will do the trick. So, yeah, it's just something that I thought while we were discussing fleas that I'd go a little bit off topic and talk about flea control in rabbits and the use of selamectin. So, yeah, the bottom line there is if you want to use selamectin, which is revolution in, in rabbits, um, um, for flea control, it does work. It's got a very wide safety margin, um, but use it at least once a week, as well as doing all the other things that we're going to jump to now. So um, getting back on track with what we were supposed to talk about, Mark, um, the overview of the treatment for these, and we can discuss generally what sort of things we use, Mark. The obvious one there is that we want to do several things for this animal that has a flea allergy, dermatitis, or the, the dog or the cat, if we st- on topic and that is we want to use a parasiticide um, for them and there are various ones lots of different parasiticides aren't there on the markets these days that have been being marketed to, to veterinarians and veterinary clinics and some work really well some work not quite as well but we need to kill those parasites both on the animal and in the environment and also all the other animals in the household need to be um, treated or prophylactively treated, um, um, even if you don't see any on there. Um, we may be using some shampoos, Mark. Um, we may be dispensing some medications to help stop the itch or if it's really um, irritated that skin and infected, we may end up having to use some antibiotics. Um, so, so yeah, do you want to have a little bit of a chat, just a, a brief chat about the parasiticide choices, Mark? What sort of things have we got that we may consider well, using? Well, um, there's quite a few, as you've already highlighted. And, um, and I think the key thing that um, when uh, I was scanning over our agenda, um, I was thinking that rather than specifically name the the, uh, um, the drugs that we would use, because I think um, that they're, in their particular circumstance, they're all very effective. Um, and I think as long as the staff you have um, have a bit of a, um, uh, an overview of what the practice policy is, um, and they're able to organise for those medications to be used appropriately, um, then they're probably all going to work. Um, we have had a few problems lately with uh, internet discussions about animals that might die on various um, uh, um, uh, uh, flea treatments, um, and that has 
in our case has led to a lot of clients being very worried about them. Um, the the discussions we have with our clients uh, highlight the fact that the likelihood of a reaction with the modern drugs is no greater um, than any of the drugs we've used previously and is far less than some of the um, um, uh, insecticides we used a long time ago. Um, but um, uh, And I think um, there's always a chance of some degree of reaction, but I think a lot of the worry uh, is... Um, is unfounded that animals uh, will, uh, because of the internet, things that happen to animals will be attributed to drugs that they've had. Um, and as we all know, uh, correlation does not necessarily um, mean causation. Um, so um, I think um, I, rather than name them specifically, I think um, training um, and uh, making sure that the practice has an overarching plan of attack for parasite control is the best way to go, Brendan. And I think it's, yeah, keeping it simple too for everybody, for the vets, for the veterinary nurses slash technicians and also the owners because, yeah, there's a probably a plethora, isn't there, of, 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 of parasiticides that, that will do the job. But you don't want to confuse that client and say, look, here's 10 different parasiticides that you could use in your pet to to kill this um, flea allergy, uh, kill the fleas on your dog and in the environment. But look, here's two, or, here's one maybe or, or, or two that we think would be suitable for you. And it's horses for courses. I think you need to choose the client and choose the pet. There may be a pet that um, it works better with um, using the topical um, spot-on type preparations and there may, may be another pet where there may be a, a use for using an oral um, parasiticide treatment for them. So I think you need to step back and, and provide the client with what you think will work best for them as far as compliance go goes and, and that you can get it into that um, pet um, correctly that the animal is dosed um, correctly for that thing. But and not confuse them with the whole list of all the different treatments available. And the beauty of the the training there, Mark, is that I think most, if not all, of the of the wholesalers or the or the companies that produce these um, products are, are very willing to come out to the veterinary clinics and provide a little one hour seminar or, or a tutorial for your staff and and maybe over a lunch period and and, and to explain how how that particular parasiticide works um, and and also provide some really good learning brochures and, and visual aids that you can use with the clients and you know as you know we both like um, showing clients lots of pretty pictures um, and we're not just talking about your fantastic bird photos mark um, we're, we're talking about um, showing the client how well these products work and how to use them and, and why we use them in particular ways so, hit yeah. the nail on the head um, there in terms of um, consistency of message i think that um, sometimes those practices that have a large variety of drugs the the clients are getting switched between medications and um and the advice they get on how they work is not consistent and that leads to failure and disappointment and so that whole of practice plan the training and as you said the drug companies are keen to um to get out and do that sort of stuff i reckon that's the way to go there is one parasiticide that I'd like to mention because it was mentioned to me by a dermatology specialist um, and it's not one that I use routinely for uh, flea prevention um, and that is uh, the the um, trade name is Capstar, Nitipiram. Um, it, um, 
it's a drug that we use for if we're doing, you know, if we have a dog that comes in that's going to be castrated, um, we will give them a dose of this to kill all the fleas on them at the time. It only works just as you give the tablet, and that's great because the fleas are not jumping into our surgical site. But this drug has an unregistered action where it uh, causes fleas to be um, to not bite, to get onto the dog, be a bit repulsed and jump off. And so it's often a good drug, and that effect lasts for about 48 hours. So if you give Capstar every second day for a box, I think there's six tablets in a box, um, that's often a good way to prove to people that um, the dog's itch is directly related to fleas that might not necessarily be apparent because... Um, once they uh, take this drug, it stops the fleas having any bites and the dogs will often be noticeably better. So that's a little side tip. You're freaking me out, Mark, because I often <laughs> recommend Capstar as well. <laughs> so there you go. Yeah, and the beauty of it is I think it works within 30 minutes, doesn't it, um, of, of giving that tablet as far as the, um, the fleas jump ship. Um, so it is very quick and working, yes. Shampoos, Brendan. You were going to talk okay. about some shampoos. Shampoo? <laughs> well, I, I think same story. We'll do, we won't talk about particular brands of shampoo, but it is something I fairly commonly will dispense for these animals with a flea allergy dermatitis because the beauty of some of these shampoos, I think, is they have that antipyritic effect, the anti-itch effect, and they have a, a soothing effect as well. So the vast majority of these cases, I will dispense shampoos as part of the therapy um, for getting that dog well again and stopping that itch. And um, the other advantage of it is I think a lot of clients enjoy that hands-on um, feel that they're physically doing something to help um, treat the itch in their particular pet. Um, so it gives them a chance to bond with their pet and shampoo them. Um, and they smell a hell of a lot better afterwards as well. So I, I very commonly dispense shampoos, Mark. I won't talk about the different brands, but do you often dispense we the shampoos? We definitely do. These ones? And uh, for the same general principles that uh, the shampoos add to the the soothing effect, I suppose, on the skin. They keep the skin from being dry and crusty and scaly and, and that adds to the itchiness and um, removing that debris, if appropriate, using antibacterial shampoos, um, using, um, you know, the, the ones that contain aloe vera or oatmeal are quite good. There's a number of um, ones that re-establish the... the, uh, the um, the protective hydrophilic layer in the skin, um, but they definitely make the animals feel much better. And once, you know, as part of the normal function of the skin, if that can be returned, the animals are less itchy. So, yes, we definitely dispense shampoos to these dogs and cats. So, yes, so. you're doing Depends cats on as cat. well? I, I less so. Yeah. And how much I want, you know, <laughs> yeah, the, 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 how nice the, the, the client is who brings the cat in. Yes, yes. So medication-wise, so we we choose our parasiticide, we choose our shampoo. So what other sort of medications may we um, be dispensing well, to the patient, Mark? this is one of the cases. Now, you know me, Brendan, and you know that I am a powerful advocate for using less corticosteroid in our patients. Um, I'd like the circumstances where we just use 
the cortisone-like drugs where they're specifically indicated um, and not as a bit of a cover-up for uh, things that uh, are going on. But phleology dermatitis, Titus is a disease that responds really well to um, uh, to corticosteroids, and the corticosteroids, in combination with antihistamines, do seem to uh, be a powerful, very quick uh, resolution. Provide a powerful and very quick resolution to the itchiness. So there would be some serious cases that we would start on those drugs. Of course, we'd make an assessment about the um, the extent of infection and the likelihood that that's going to resolve. Um, and if there's any significant uh, um, pyoderma, then we would uh, use amoxicillin and clavulanate. That's our first choice in these dogs. And um, we, we probably don't use as um, many non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs because uh, low doses, half a milligram per kilogram tapering of prednisolone does such a great job in many of these cases and we don't have to use it for long just until we've got the the uh, parasiticide working. Um, yeah, we pro do you use a lot of NSAIDs in these cases, Brendan? Um. Probably not. Probably more so um, the alternate day um, corticosteroids as a as a sort of first choice with them, and taper it off fairly fairly quickly after a few days. Um, sometimes I'm adding the one that has a little bit of an antihistamine in there as well, but I'm I'm not convinced I'm doing much more by adding that in there as well. I think it's more a bit old school that I shouldn't be um I should be moving away from that with it but yeah um so pretty similar to what you're 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 using there Mark and antibiotic choice wise similar um although um ones that aren't looking horribly infected but I do want to cover them with antibiotics because I think they do require some I may use some um uh cephalexin um with them um as well as or as an alternative to the um amoxicillin clavulanic acid with them so yeah not dissimilar to what you're you're using mark yeah um yeah so and my oh well, looking down our little list there mark i think the next thing um that i always try and stress to the client is that i want to do a follow-up consultation with that pet um usually between five and ten days after i've first seen it um with or without the fleas jumping around the consult room i want to see the pet again for a revisit um to see what's what's happening there um to ensure that one the medications are working and two, they've been dis, uh, used or complied with as far as the method that we recommended to use them and that the animal's improving. Um, and if all's good, then yes, all is good with the world. Um, do you have any comments about doing the follow-up consultations, Mark? Do you have a high uptake of that or a low uptake or you what, what what's your method of trying to encourage clients well, I think to, to come the, in for that follow-up? It is really important. I think um, uh, the the possibility that these are the cases uh, in my experience where just little breakdowns uh, do definitely occur, and uh, and our general plan doesn't always um, cover every single circumstance, um, and so there are times when these cases do uh, fall apart, and they're people so. They do seem to be this. These types of cases inspire a great deal of passion in um, clients. They're very committed to making sure their pet doesn't have fleas, and so 
for us to start with it, uh, suggesting that fleas might be the problem often puts them a little bit on edge and then if the result is not um, prompt and complete then um, it often is a really you know uh, a thing that people are prepared to talk to their neighbours about and um, how uh, how the, the whole process failed. So following up is absolutely critical, I think, um, and um, and I think that uh, uh, particularly because um, the the fleas in the environment are often the hardest ones to get under control and um, they will be gradually swept up by patients uh, over the ensuing month. And so it's often that, you know, a few weeks after you start the treatment that everything settles down dramatically. And I think it's good to remind clients of that a couple of times and also just be around at the time that things, you know, get much better. So you can take credit for it. If you are not um, and you don't follow up, then you know, whatever additional treatment the neighbours or um, uh, the herbalist or whoever has suggested will get the credit for the work that you did at that first consult, Brendan. Yeah, I th I think you're spot on in that there's sort of a stigma, isn't there, with with um, the thought that my dog has fleas. Um, it's a shame factor, isn't it, that people feel embarrassed that their dog has fleas. But I try and be upbeat about it as I said at the start and say some look it's actually good that your dog has fleas because it's something we can cure relatively easy in the vast majority of the cases and that hey have a look at this other dog that um, is on lifelong special diets because it has this weird um, autoimmune disease and and, and um, um, dietary allergies and it, it's costing them a fortune to keep it on it you don't have that problem we should be able to fix this in your dog so yeah um, so yeah follow up consult really important um, so yeah so that's hopefully everybody's enjoyed um, and they're not feeling like they need to scratch or itch stop scratching um, the little topic we had today because I think we will include a few more topics like this Mark um, general sort of topics about um, how we deal with these because I think they end up being well, we do, more we, of we our do get, popular um, you and I do um, get a little bit uh, focused marks, so. on our particular areas of interest and we know that we've got some listeners who are just as uh, um, manic about the unusual and exotic and avian pets that we get to see but with, this is a podcast that's egalitarian and we want to encourage it to be uh, uh, something that's valuable for all our veterinary um, support staff and veterinarians that listen to us so yep I agree with you I think we will um, uh, expand our horizons Yes, well, next week is probably going to be the special edition after our visit to the Australian Veterinary Association. We should have a few fun interviews. So Mark and I may sound a little bit different um, next week because we Mark won't be in his studio and I won't be um, in my studio. We'll be in the field, won't we, Mark? So we may sound a tad different um, and we may even be a little bit inebriated um, um, at some some stage. Um, so it could be an interesting little podcast next week. So we look forward to hearing from you or speaking to you again and send us an email, vetgurus at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. 
Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time. Oh,